This is the Cubicle Renegade Podcast, session number 19. Welcome to the Cubicle Renegade Podcast, where unfulfilled desk jockeys become fearless entrepreneurs. Learn from corporate escapees and world changers who are successfully building businesses that matter. Here's your host, Caleb Wojcik. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me here in another session of the Cubicle Renegade podcast. Today I'm joined by Alan Perlman, who currently works at HubSpot, which is a content marketing company. But he also had one of the coolest jobs that I've ever heard of. He used to travel all over the world, live in places for up to three months at a time, and just figure out how expensive it was to live in those places. So in this chat, we talk about how he ended up with that job, how he transitioned into working for HubSpot, and what kind of projects he has on the side. Let's dive right in. Hey everyone, today I'm joined by Alan Perlman, who's an inbound marketing specialist at HubSpot, which is one of the largest online marketing companies in the world, really. So thanks for joining me today, Alan. Thanks, Caleb. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. We first met probably online, but then in person at World Domination Summit uh, a couple years ago. And your, your story was really interesting to me because you had probably one of the most interesting jobs I've ever heard of that was actually at a company. And so I like for you to tell people how you got paid to travel to like over 60 countries in three years. How do you got paid to do that? It's a ridiculously random job in a very niche market. And <laughs> I was in the right place at the right time. So basically I worked at a company that provided data and consulting services to fortune 100, 500, a thousand companies that are in the process of relocating their employees. So cross border transfers, mm -hmm. think expatriates, right? Expatriates are all over the globe. And if you have the same job in New York City versus Buenos Aires or Tokyo, you might have the same role, the same function, but your cost of living allowance, your package, your housing, if you're moving your family, that can change quite a bit, right, mm -hmm. based on where you live. So my, my former company and a few other companies in that space provided all of the data and consulting services around that. So I was one of those on the ground uh, surveyors, basically, that was my title. And I got paid to travel to countries and basically understand what it was like to live and shop in, in a particular city that our clients were based in or, you know, plan on relocating clients to. So anything from running around supermarkets and pharmacies and writing down prices to car shopping and, you know, my favorite's always lingerie shopping. I always got strange looks. In the Middle East, when I was in the women's lingerie department at these huge shopping malls. But that was malls. one of the cells in your spreadsheet you had to fill in? Yeah, it was. It was. Um, I got to meet with real estate agents to understand the housing market. That's mm -hmm. a big, big part of what we did as well. Put together some pretty comprehensive housing reports. And then meeting clients as well. You know, what is it like to live in Astana, Kazakhstan on a two-year assignment, right? What are the... Um, the the cultural issues, um, you know, how do you, what do you do when you have R&R &R for a week? Where do you go? Where do you get your goods from? Mm -hmm. It's a fan, fascinating job. I really enjoyed it. And so how long did you do that for? Oh. I did that for three years, three full mm -hmm. years. And so you'd go and live somewhere for a couple months at a time. And so did, did you like this job or did it actually get draining after a while? Yeah, so definitely a bit of both. Um, my schedule, and I, I believe it's still the same schedule with the surveyors that work there. We would travel four times a year, unless there were special one-off assignments. And each mm -hmm. trip was about six weeks long, give or take. And in a given six-week trip, we would travel between four and maybe six or seven cities. 
So we weren't actually in the same city for a very long time. And that was frustrating for me sometimes. Um, if I was in a, a location that I really enjoyed or you know, a very interesting location, it was hard for me just to know that I was only going to be there for three or four nights and I'd be working you know, 70, 80% of the time. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I really, really enjoyed the travel. That's why I took the job. And yes, the, the trials and tribulations of travel did wear on me after a few years. And that was one of the reasons I decided to you know, start looking elsewhere. And so you started a blog during all these travels, right? I did. And, it, and actually, blogging for me goes back to 2006. When I was in college, I studied abroad in Kathmandu in, in Nepal. And I, I traveled around northern India a bit as well. And I talked to a few friends above me who had studied abroad. And I asked them how they kept in touch with families and friends, right? This was, you know, even in 2006, not everybody had a smartphone, right? Mm -hmm. So a little bit less connected than we are now. And I was trying to figure out how to stay in touch with everyone. And I was afraid that I was going to miss email addresses and I didn't want to upset anybody. So I found blogger.com, right? And I set up a free blog and just started writing once or twice a week my updates in Nepal. And at the end of that semester, I was surprised to look at my traffic and talk to former high school teachers who had found my blog and friends and friends and, you know, friends of friends of family members who had found my blog. And I realized that this is such an interesting portal and a medium of communication. So when I when I got this job, I, I wanted to keep blogging. So I decided to kind of jump into the travel blogging sphere. And I did a bit of research and I found guys like nomadicmat.com and you know, a few other people who were travel blogging back then. And I figured it would be a really good journal for me and just a good way to keep in touch as I traveled the globe. And so when did you start to take blogging seriously and how did it end up landing you a job at HubSpot when you transitioned out of your travel job? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, define taking blogging seriously, right? To me, blogging is still personal. Like mm -hmm. I did experiment with various community building efforts, right? So I, I taught myself search engine optimization when I started understanding, you know, how people were finding my website and I toyed around with different keywords there. And um, I started integrating social media a bit. And really, I used the blog for personal reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I tried to make money here and there, right? I threw up ads, I sold text links, like very, very small scale stuff. And I never really thought that it was going to be... Um, a money maker for me. I used it to connect with people like yourself, right? Like we met because we were both blogging and I, I got to meet all these other people through the blog. So um, in terms of taking it seriously, I think once the traffic started to pick up a bit, I, I found it harder and harder to press that publish button. I'm not sure if that's something you struggle with, but even to this day, right? I've been blogging since 2006. It's really hard for me to press that publish button sometimes. So when I started to understand that I had a regular community of visitors, right? When I had over a hundred email subscribers, I was like, wow, this is a real thing. I should probably tighten it up a little bit and actually try to find my voice. Mm -hmm. So that was probably, you know, after a year or so of traveling when, when I got to that point. And then you then, you were kind of at a crossroads because you had this travel job and then you could have maybe just went all in on this blogging full-time thing but you decided to do something different. So how did you end up working with HubSpot? I did, right. So I left my last job um, really with no work prospects. Um, I had an idea of kind of what I wanted to do, but I needed to take some time off. So I was working on a few side projects 
that had started to pick up steam while I was traveling. And I had tried to interview for companies on the road, and it was very difficult to have Skype conversations in one time zone and, and to try and coordinate my schedule because I was only back for a few weeks at a time. So I knew that I needed to take time off. And I left my, my former job on July 31st, and I woke up on August 1st, a Monday, and I realized, okay, wow, this is, this is the real deal. I don't have any money coming in. This is a little different from what I've been doing the last three years. So I just started talking to as many people as possible. And I hopped on the phone and I sent emails and I researched companies and I watched, you know, as many YouTube videos of people doing interesting things just to get a sense of what I wanted to do next. And, you know, I, I've heard this advice from a lot of people, but, you know, in an ideal world, you're working in a capacity where you're passionate about something and you're really good at something. It's kind of like that Venn diagram, right? Like you've got the one passion bubble and the one, you know, skill set bubble and you're somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. So. I, I took all of the skill sets I had learned at my last job in terms of uh, research, economic analysis, being able to you know think quick on my feet and you know understand the trials and tribulations of, of travel. And then I thought about the blog, right, and everything I had been doing on in the online space. And I realized that that's what I wanted to really get into. So. I started looking at marketing companies, advertising companies. I was looking in Boston. I was looking in New York because New York has a really strong traditional advertising scene. And the more conversations I had, the more I realized I really wanted to get into digital marketing. So I stumbled across HubSpot. There's a, a bi-monthly meeting here in Boston called the Web Innovators Group, where companies pitch their, their product or service in front of you know a few uh, well, it was a few hundred. Now it's now it's several hundred, and, and I think a few thousand people. And um, I I was there with a friend a few years ago, and and my friend had introduced me to HubSpot, and it it jumped on my radar again. They publish a ton of content, so I subscribed to their blog. I started reading their updates. I started reading about their software, and I I sent in my application, and I heard back uh, a few weeks later, and kickstarted the application process. And really, what their big question was for me was, you know, why do you belong here? right? You're coming from this other background. What makes you fit to teach marketing? I was applying for um, a job where I would help onboard HubSpot customers. Mm -hmm. So teaching them the software, helping them weave it into their marketing and sales processes. And, you know, I basically talked about my blog and, and talked about search engine optimization and email marketing and, and really just all of the trial and error experiments that I had done while traveling and what had worked and what hadn't worked. And, why I was interested in, in, you know, making that a part of my career, part of my next step. And, and I ended up making that transition pretty seamlessly. Mm -hmm. And so what are, you, what are you doing now at HubSpot? And like, what kinds of things have you learned at HubSpot that then, you know, correspond to, you know, what you do blogging now online? Mm -hmm. So I started in November of 2011 and I worked... I worked as an inbound marketing consultant. So for about 10 months, I helped onboard customers one-on-one. -on -one. So kind of like software consulting, marketing consulting, tech support. Um, and I worked with a total of 50 customers one-on-one. -on -one. So for me, it was being able to understand how to weave that software into their marketing and sales processes, right? So. HubSpot is, is an all-in-one marketing platform. So I was trying to understand, okay, what are their goals, right? Why did they buy this software? 
and what what are they looking to get out of it, right? So some companies need more website traffic, right? It's, it's very top of the funnel. They're just not getting enough exposure. So we talk about keyword optimization, social media, um, you know, page optimization and, and driving people to your website and kind of, you know, identifying your buyer personas and, and what kind of qualified traffic you want to get in front of your brand. Other companies are a little bit more advanced, right? And they've got several hundred leads coming in every single month from a number of different forms uh, on landing pages throughout their entire website, different stages of the buying process and, you know, helping them put together really complicated email marketing campaigns. You know, this event happens and this triggers an email and based on this list, you know, you get another series of emails. So in terms of what I learned in that role, it was basically how to consult. I learned how to be a consultant. Um, and that's why I originally came to HubSpot. That was the role that I was looking to, to join. You asked what I do now. I, I transitioned from that role into um, a different team and it's called the HubSpot Academy team. And we're responsible for teaching inbound marketing and, and HubSpot software on a grander scale. So not doing one-on-one -on -one consulting, but doing group training. So running huge webinars where hundreds of people attend and maintaining an educational blog, um, running weekly product training classes, intermediate workshops, advanced strategy series. So I did that for a number of months as well. And my manager and I kept talking and um, really exploring my interests and, and I'm super interested in online education. I, I've been following companies like Codecademy, Coursera, Khan Academy, and just ha have watched this whole ecosystem of, of online education sprout right over the last few years. So trying to explore how HubSpot could dive into some of that. And at, at the time, back in 2009, we had started this thing called Inbound Marketing University. And it had done really well. Several thousand people had gone through our recorded classes and taken a test and become certified in our methodology, but it hadn't been updated in a while. So I worked with my manager and, and a few other people on my team to help um, to help redo that from the ground up. And, and that was kind of the start of a new role for me. Right now, I'm working as a certification program manager. So we launched that first inbound marketing certification a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And we have more certifications on the way. So basically helping formalize our training instead of just doing, you know, weekly sessions and onboarding consulting, really trying to um, tighten, tighten up our education in a formal certification program. And so whether it's a, you know, a bigger company or maybe it's like a mom and pop shop, what are the biggest mistakes people are making with inbound marketing or with blogging or trying to find new customers? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, I think the most fundamental mistake is that people don't have clear goals and what they're trying to accomplish. Inbound marketing is, is amazing um, in the sense that, you know, there's this fundamental shift in the way that you and I shop online, right? You and I meaning like the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And inbound marketing is about bringing people in, right? For folks who have read Permission Marketing by Seth Godin, that's inbound marketing. It's, it's asking permission. It's, it's not interrupting your prospects, your leads, or your customers. So with that said, there's so many different ways to practice inbound marketing that it's, it can be really overwhelming for a lot of people. And the customers that see success, at least in, in HubSpot's ecosystem, are, are the ones that have very, very clear goals. And that can be a really difficult conversation to have, right? Because think about search engine optimization and 
all of the people selling snake oil out there, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I am this company and I will get you ranking on the first page of Google within six months, right? That is my promise to you. It's bogus, right? These things don't happen. You know, five years ago, it was possible to do something like that. But it's, it's tough because there's so many people talking about best practices and what you need for your company. There's just a lot of noise. So in terms of, you know, mistakes, it's really, it's really just lacking that sense of focus. That's, that's the biggest mistake. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it totally does. And you, you and I were talking before we hit record about how to be like an entrepreneur and think like an entrepreneur when you're working at a company of, you know, more than five or 10 people. And Mm -hmm. HubSpot is, you said like 550, almost 600 people. And Mm -hmm. so what are some things that you do day to day because you think like an entrepreneur that help you in your job and help, you know, move you into better positions and more roles and responsibilities? Yeah. So it's, it's a constant process. I'm still trying to figure it all out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, HubSpot is amazing in, in the sense that it's, it's culture is, is very open and, and they promote this, this whole concept of entrepreneurship in the office. So we have a whole program, like an, an experiments program where if you have an idea and you want to work nights and weekends on it, you can't, you don't have to ask anybody's permission. You can just work on it. And when it starts to gain traction, you can formally present it in a monthly experiments meeting. And that meeting was actually held today. Um, and, and a few experiments have been approved. So there's a whole process there. And that's kind of how the company has, has grown over the last few years. Me personally, I'm, I'm focusing mostly on time management, um, you know, juggling several projects at once and trying to prioritize my day. So today was one of those rare days where I didn't have any group training sessions. I didn't have to hop on the phone at all. Um, so, you know, making sure that I was doing things like not keeping my email open all of the day, but only checking it two or three times throughout the day, locking myself in a conference room and not telling buddy on my team where I was for an hour and a half yeah. so I could actually get some work done. And I'm just trying to experiment with all these different systems and, you know, really trying to work with my manager on how to be as productive as possible in an environment that's constantly changing and we're getting pulled in all these different directions. It's really tricky. Yeah. And that was one of the biggest things that I remember of my day job at Boeing was, you know, we had half cubicles. So it was so easy to get distracted by someone that came up and talked to you or whatever. And, and it was a little bit easier if you just put your headphones on and you were just you know, antisocial. But, right. you know, there are little tricks like that, like schedule an appointment with yourself in an empty conference room and just go and work. And it's like, it, you can have appointments with yourself. I don't see why there's anything wrong with that. You know, I mean, yeah. depending on the company, they might think it's a little weird, but you know, there, there are definitely those kinds of hacks, if you want to call them that, to, to be more productive. And I mean, there's stuff that Tim Ferriss talks about in 4-Hour Workweek that is like that. Is like that. There are similar topics. Um, you know, I spent the last week re-diving into the book Getting Things Done by David Allen oh. and then checking out OmniFocus and, you know, how to just stay on top of everything and and to stay organized. And that's kind of a... That's kind of a separate competition, like a separate conversation. Yeah, but I, yeah, I love getting things done. And actually, I want to plug um, a reading list for anyone who hasn't heard of the personal MBA. Um, I, I think you've heard of that, Caleb. But yeah, he's actually I recorded an interview with him. So by the time this one's out, I think his is going to be the next one. Oh, wow. For his, for his new right. book. 
So that's awesome. Very cool. So yeah, I mean, people will hear all about it then. But I've been following his program for the last few years. I'm you know 35, 36 books in, and getting things done was one of those first books that I read. And you know, the whole idea of understanding how information enters your life and like documenting all those input systems and you know how to tighten everything up. I love it. I should probably go back and reread that book. Yeah, I I just reread it because I had a long road trip this past weekend, and so. Um, some really good resources for people. And I think I, I think I should just do a whole post on this because it's so interesting to me. Um, I don't know if you've heard the podcast Back to Work before Mm-mm. with Merlin Mann and Dan Benjamin. Um, Chase Reeves recommended this to me, but they have five episodes in a row where they talk about getting things done and they go in depth on it. And um, Merlin Mann actually talked with David Allen you know, a few years ago. And so there's another hour and a half conversation about it. And, you know, you can talk about productivity so much. I know some people call it productivity porn, just like looking at, you know, different systems and how to stay, you know, focused on getting things done that you don't actually get any stuff done. But, right. but I still think it's important to have a system that can capture everything. And, you know, what are the five, the five things he has is like capture and organize, um, do is one review. So there's like different stages that you need to be in mindset wise to actually get stuff done. It's not just always, you know, cranking widgets as David Allen likes to call it. It's you have to plan and figure out what things are the highest priority and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, what are, what are some other books on that personal MBA list that really stood out to you? Uh, Work the system by, I think it's Sam Carpenter. I hope I'm getting that right. But it's it's a fascinating story. It's very philosophical. So it's a little bit different of a pace than a traditional like nonfiction book. But basically that the thesis of that book is that everything can be systematized. So I always try to think of my job functions and you know if I could I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. I, I think in the book he talks about where he, he purchases a company that's failing. And he ends up working, you know, 100 plus hours a week. And then he realizes that he can systematize a lot of what he's doing. So documenting everything out and really forcing oneself to come up with frameworks for almost everything that you do. And even even at HubSpot now, just working with my manager, trying to understand the different frameworks for my day allows me to prioritize a lot more efficiently. So one thing that my manager has, has done on our team, which is really cool, is he has everybody on our team, and I'm on a pretty small team, there are like seven of us right now. He has us outline our habits and our projects. So our habits are things that we have to do every single week, right? So on my habits list right now, it's things like, I spend about two hours a week responding to customer emails for a particular type of question. Mm-hmm. I teach X number of classes per week. I manage this weekly webinar every week, and that takes me about four hours, right? So putting that on paper and trying to understand my habits and then looking at my projects, right? So we're always trying to push forward. And the reason I'm talking about this is because work this system, when I'm thinking about this book, it's about really trying to understand those those projects and, and those systems. So, you know, documenting out, okay, for the next four weeks, I'm only working on four projects or five projects. And if I'm not doing any of my habits, I'm focusing on my projects. So it's this cool framework, right? It's it's um, it's helped me out a lot. So I really like work the system. 
I like Ramit Sethi's book on personal finance. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I imagine a lot of people who listen to Pocket Changed have, have heard of his book, but it's, I will teach you to be rich. Very scammy sounding title, but I learned a ton from that book about automating your finances and, and trying to understand what those key big points are, um, you know, because personal finance is one of those topics that can be pretty overwhelming as well. So mm-hmm. those two books come to mind. I mean, I could wax philosophical on all of the books that I've read. It's it's a really well curated list and kudos to Josh Kaufman and the hundreds of hours he's put into into those books. Yeah. And one of the things that people will hear when they listen to that interview with him is I actually get him to to narrow it down to like one or two books out of the mm-hmm. 99. He's already curated these hundreds of books that he's read down to 99. They make him curate it even more to just like <laughs> a couple of books. So people will have to listen to that interview to, to hear what he says. But so let's talk about um, some of your side projects that you have going on. So one is actually with uh, Joel Runyon, who was actually the first guest on this podcast called Nerve Rush. So what do you guys do over at Nerve Rush? So NerveRush.com started out as just an adrenaline sports media website. We, we curate videos from around the web of people doing gut-wrenching activities. We write about them. We write about news in the extreme sports space. We put together guides on obstacle race training and how to get a skydiving license and, and things like that. So it's interesting. Um, at the time you interviewed Joel, he and I were working together. He has since moved on to other projects. Mm-hmm. We still talk all the time. But right now I'm running Nerve Rush solo and really trying to figure out how to take it to that next level. So the site traffic has been going way up over the last few months. My lead capture has been going way up over the last few months. So I'm building a really good community around certain interests. And I'm starting to really understand the demographic of the person visiting that website, where they're spending their time and what they're interested in. But now the, the, the website and the, the brand is at a stage where it can go in a lot of different directions. So I'm really trying to take a step back and, and put a few things on autopilot and, and try, to, try to think high level, right? 30,000 feet, where do I want Nerve Rush to go? The original mm-hmm. idea was to take on Red Bull, right? <laughs> so Red Bull owns the extreme sports space as a brand, right? Yeah. Any extreme sports event that you see. Um, you see Red Bull parachutes and Red Bull yachts and Red Bull events. If you've ever been to a Red Bull Flugtag event, they're really fun. So my thought was um, the extreme sports space, when I really started to research the numbers um, and, and the businesses and, and just all the the stats around extreme sports as a whole, it's it's exploding right now. And it's, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, you know, look at all the obstacle race companies that have started over the last few years. Spartan Race, Tough Mudder being kind of the two big, big ones, Warrior Dash. Um, so really just trying to cater to that community and take the site in a way where it grows with that community of extreme sports. So it's been a really fun side project. It's tough now because HubSpot takes up most of my time, but you know I spend three to five hours a week on that site on average. You know The occasional free weekend I have, I'll head to Starbucks and, and crank out you know five, six, seven hours on the site. Um, but I've met a lot of really interesting people. I've got a lot of really exciting ideas of where to take it and other types of content to produce that'll keep bringing in more folks. But I'm, I'm using it as a testing ground. So all day long, I, I teach inbound marketing and then I get home, I open up nerverush.com and I try to practice what I preach. Mm-hmm. So I actually, I run the site on WordPress as my CMS, but everything else is done on HubSpot software. So it's fun for me. I get to experiment with, um, 
you know, what, what is that work-life balance, right? I'm, I'm really merging my world. It's been fun. Yeah. And so what are some things that are working for you for, you know, lead generation is one thing you mentioned. What's working for you at Nerve Rush or with companies at HubSpot? Yeah. So a lot of companies, um, and, and this was myself, right, a year and a half ago, um, were fascinated with that traffic number, right? I'm, I'm getting 10,000 visits a site or a month to my site, you know, oh, wow, that's amazing. But what are you doing with all that traffic? And a lot of people can't answer that question. What are you doing to capitalize on all of the eyeballs on your various pages? And, and do you understand how to best capture their attention? So one thing that I did with Nerve Rush is I just threw up a few landing pages. Um, one of them <laughs> one of them was a partner landing page. It's you know go.nerverush.com forward slash partner. And I spun that up in about an hour. It was my first landing page. I'd never set one up before. And you know, within 48 hours, I had people filling it out. And it was just amazing, right? I had several thousand people visiting the site every single month. I aside from like a very bland contact us form, I hadn't really you know, Joel and I hadn't really thought of a way to, to capture someone's attention. So I threw up a, a partner landing page and I said, oh, you want to partner with Nerve Rush and reach a growing community of extreme sports enthusiasts? Give us your name and email address and we'll be in touch. Mm -hmm. and to this day, that form has started so many relationships. And um, from there, I've, I've tried to put out some more premium content. So, you know, fill out this this landing page form tell us your favorite extreme sports tell us what city you live in and we'll send you a 60 page obstacle race training guide put together by this expert dot 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 so um that's what's worked really well for me and just in terms of quick wins with customers because i'm always about quick wins right you know you're paying for hubspot software on a month-to-month -month basis um so what can we get done in the next two weeks or three weeks where you're going to keep seeing results and oftentimes it's just pressing publish on a landing page, coming up with a very compelling marketing offer that appeals to your buyer personas, setting up a form, a couple of bullet points, uh, a relevant image, and seeing who fills that out, right? Putting call to action buttons around your website to bring people's attention to that landing page. You know, That's very, what I was just going to ask is how are you getting people to that landing page? Is through your own site? Yeah, through the own site, through your current network, um, you know, email marketing, social media, all the various marketing channels. Um, guest posting, right? That's that's one thing that I imagine a lot of folks who listen in on, on your podcast are well aware of as a really solid inbound marketing strategy. Um, but yeah, step one, like my, my coworker, Alec, Alec Badricki came up with this really great analogy and I try to use it all the time. So think of, think of, um, think of inbound marketing is like you're throwing this big party and you want as many guests to come to the party as possible, and that's your website traffic, right? You want as many guests to come to the door. You want to throw a huge party. But once people open the door, where do they go? Where do they put their coats? Where do they listen to music? Where do they have a, a casual conversation? Where do they get drinks? Where do they get food? What rooms are they supposed to stand in? And, and it helps me think about website architecture, right? What's that next step after somebody hits the site? And a landing page is one small part of the user experience. So after somebody fills out a landing page, what happens, right? They press the submit button, they get their ebook or they get to listen in on this premium, you know, private webinar or what have you. What do you do after the fact to sustain that engagement and to move somebody through that buying process? If you have an end product or service that you're trying to, um, 
that you're trying to sell, mm-hmm. right? And, and I know that's something that you've experiment, experimented with quite a bit. You and Corvette do a fantastic job of website experience, right? There's a very positive experience when you go to the website and they're call to action buttons in all the right places. And it's very clear to me when I visit, you know, your website, who the buyer persona is and how I'm going to benefit from poking around your website. And a lot of companies fall short there. So that's where a lot of the consulting comes into play. It's like being clear and clarifying like who the site's for and who it's not for, and then offering, you know, free things for them to you know, kind of entice them and say this site's worth it? Yeah. So at, at its root, it comes back to the buyer persona, right? Who are you trying to sell your product or service to? And even if you're only selling one product or service and you feel like you're in a niche market, there's several different ideal buyer personas, right? Ideal customer types. So if you're a plumber, for example, you've got your plumbing products or services, you could sell to the owner of a single family home in the suburbs that needs you for emergency work once a year or once every three years, you could also sell to the landlord of a large apartment complex in an urban city, right? Who needs you for regular maintenance. So two very different types of customers that might be visiting your website. So how do you create an experience that targets both of those buyer personas? And that's where it all starts. And then once we start talking about marketing offers and landing pages, email marketing, um, trying to understand that buying process, right? So the vast majority of people that visit a, a company's website are really early in the buying process. They're just poking around, looking for more information. They're interested in things like white papers and eBooks and watching videos, reading blog posts with bullet points, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the vast majority of traffic. But then you have people that are a little bit deeper in the buying process. Maybe they know your brand. They're evaluating you against other opportunities. They recognize that you're offering a solution for their problem. So how do we create content and a website and marketing experience for those people, right? And examples of marketing offers might be something like more in-depth webinars or a complimentary consultation or a really in-depth case study that presents your unique value proposition as a brand. Um, And then, of course, you've got people that are at the very end of the buying process. They're just looking for that little nudge to give you their credit card information, right? And what kind of website experience are we giving to those people? So things like coupons, promotional codes, free trials, free demos. Again, complimentary consultations are, are really good there. So just trying to map your content and your website experience to people that are at different stages of that buying process, that's a huge component as well. I think that's almost you know, going to the next level is figuring out not only like who your ideal customer is, but like a couple of them, like you said. Mm -hmm. And so people either beginner, intermediate or advanced, or, you know, just heard of you, they've been reading you for a while, or they're ready to buy something from you, you know, think of the three different stages, all these different kinds of visitors and potential customers are. And, you know, once you silo them like that, then like anything you create, target it towards one of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can target beginners for something that's free or, you know, the very first thing they see when they sign up with their email or something. But as they progress through the stage, like keep keep impressing them in a way. Yep, absolutely. It's all about content, right? Content is king. So how can we sustain someone's attention and not be too salesy? And there's a fine line between between that. What's interesting is, and this is again where I see a lot of companies fall short, is they're so focused on closing the lead 
right? They're so focused on that marketing sales alignment and, and getting that paying customer that once they have the paying customer, they, they drop off with their engagement. So really trying to focus on, and this is becoming a lot more important in today's world where we care about the mission of brand, right? We care about the, the products that we purchase, right? We're a lot more cognizant of the story behind the company. So trying to focus on not just getting a customer, but what do you do to delight the customer, right? What email marketing campaigns do you have for your customers? What opportunities do you have for your customers, right? That are customer specific that make the people who have opted into your brand feel really special, right? You want to create a community of promoters, of, of brand evangelists. And, you know, Apple is, is kind of this iconic brand that has done that really well. Um, but the really successful companies do an amazing job at delighting their customers. Yeah. And I mean, even just think in your head, when was the last time you were on an email list that was delightful? Like that <laughs> maybe never, you know, so, so be different, you know, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. and you can do it in so many different ways. You know, it doesn't even have to be, you personally can just be your copywriting, your design. Um, it, it could be anything. And I think that's something that we really try to do within fizzle and think traffic is we try to make it as fun as possible too. Um, because the last thing that education needs to be is more boring. And so <laughs> that's what we really try to focus on. So, so let's wrap things up with what's, what's one piece of advice you could give an early entrepreneur if you could go back and, and start it all over again. Um, I think that, wow, that's a deep question, Caleb. <laughs> um, I mean, setting goals is, is a big part of what drives me. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, if I were to kind of like present one overarching piece of advice around entrepreneurship, it would be just to keep moving forward. So subscribe to the philosophy that you're going to fail and your day, regardless of whatever you're working on, even if you're at a company, right, you can be an entrepreneur in an organization. Um, just recognize that your day is made up of hundreds of micro decisions, hundreds and hundreds of micro decisions. So be wary of all of those decisions and keep making them right. Fortune favors the bold. So when you make a decision, stick with it, keep moving forward, obviously reflect on, on what you're working on. But, um, I feel like at least where I've personally fallen short is, you know, I get really excited about an idea. I make those decisions. I keep pushing forward and then a weekend happens or a vacation happens and I find it hard to dive back into that project. So whatever you can do, whoever's listening to this right now, whatever you can do to keep pushing forward, um, I guess that would be the wisdom that I would try to impart. Well, I love that. I think, I think momentum is huge. And I think that part of, you know, going back to getting things done is, is having a system in place so that when you walk away for a bit and you come back, you don't feel overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. You just step right back in, you know, what's, most important thing you should be working on you know all the projects you have going on and you don't have to have that overwhelming feeling that you get like on sunday night or like the last day of a vacation where you're like oh i have so much work to catch up on um like when you have a system in place that tracks all of your work mm -hmm. then you don't really have that feeling anymore and i think just just another thing that i've been thinking a lot more about and this is just the product of of my team right now and the types of topics we're chatting about understanding the why the how and the what of what you're working on so if you have an idea if you have an idea for an iphone app or a website or a blog to start or some kind of consulting that you want to get into why 
right? What's the end goal? Why are you doing, why are you interested in this idea? And then the how is that framework that we talked about, right? So how are you actually going to structure out you diving into this idea, right? Where is it going to start? What are the ABCs, you know, steps one, two, and three? What's your timeline look like? What are your milestones that you're going to set? And then the what is like the nitty gritty work that has to get done. Um, sometimes you have to bring in other people. Sometimes you can do it yourself. But really just understanding that high level why, how, what framework is is what's helped me kind of push some of my stuff forward too. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me today, Alan. Yeah, awesome. Caleb, it was great to catch up. Yeah. Um, and where can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? You can find me at alan-perlman.com. And then all my other projects are listed there. Perfect. Thanks. Awesome. Take care, guys. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Alan. Uh, just a cool background that he has. And he's doing really awesome things at HubSpot. And I know he'll go on to do even bigger and better things. Next week, I'm joined by Andy Traub for the big episode 2-0. He's the host of the unofficial Lynchpin podcast. And he's also the author of a successful book about how to wake up early, the early to rise experience. See you then. Thanks for listening to the Pocket Changed Cubicle Renegade podcast at www.pocketchanged.com. To read this episode's show notes or check out other sessions, head over to cubiclerenegade.com.